Well, good morning, Journey Church. It's good to see you guys. We are in a, a series called No Other Gods, and so today we're going to be talking about the God of sports. <laughs> Ch- choking. <laughs> we'll do that some other week. Um, <laughs> I thought it was funny. I think only like three of you thought it was funny. Um, so if you're new today, we first of all say welcome, so glad that you're with us, and sometimes when you come into a church and you hear a pastor say, we're in the middle of a series, you go, wow, I feel like I just walked in, in the middle of a movie, so let me bring the whole room up to speed, and let's just be honest, the people who have been here for the series can't even remember what the series is about, so this is our opportunity just to review and bring us all up to speed. We're in a series called No Other Gods, and the premise of this series is that every person in this room... No matter whether you're in middle school or you've been retired for a few years, maybe you have a PhD or you've hardly even graduated from high school or whatever your situation is, maybe you identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here and just honestly, you're here because somebody invited you and you're kicking the tires and trying to figure out what you believe about God and the Bible and Jesus. Regardless of all of those things, every person in this room, in the inner core of your being, your inner person, you have a throne. And somebody or something or some pursuit or some ambition is seated in that throne in the core of your being. And the question is, have you identified it? Most of us go through life and we haven't even identified what is that priority of my life, that that thing of uttermost importance in my life. What, What is that? Have you named it? So in the Bible, what we talked about a couple weeks ago is back in Exodus chapter 20, the people of Israel, which started as a family and now have grown exponentially, have been freed from Egyptian slavery. They had been slaves for 400 years, and they come out of Egyptian slavery, and they've got this scarcity mindset and slavery mindset and and all of this uh, identity issues going on, and God says, let me introduce myself to you. And we find this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, where he says, I am the Lord your God. Like he makes it personal. Before this time, gods were always seen as distant and far away and, and, you know, that they were angry and upset. And God goes, I am the Lord your God. This is personal. You can know me. I'm knowable. I want relationship with you. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. I am the Lord, your God. And, and he says, but I am the Lord, your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Like, not just am I personal, but I am the God who has gone to great lengths to bring freedom into your life, to free you from those things that have enslaved you. And then he says this, you must not have any other God but me. In other words, the language that we've been using here is that no, that the, the God alone must sit on the throne. God alone must sit on the throne. So, so what are the things that we allow to sit in that throne that God wants? And God wants to have the throne exclusively. He doesn't want to share it with anything else or anyone else. What are some of the, 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 the things that we're guilty of putting on the throne? Last week we talked about the, the idol of power. And even if your quest isn't to have a worldwide platform, most of us do crave power, at least in our individual relationships. We, 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 we fight for power in our marriages or in our schoolrooms or in workplaces. Or, or if we, we've resigned ourselves to the fact that we won't have power, we idolize the power in others. And so we pursue others who seem to have power. Like power can be, power can be an idol for some of us. 
Today I'm going to talk about an idol that might hit a little closer to home. I know it certainly does for me. This is the idol of reputation. And for followers of Jesus, kind of, this is kind of the way it goes, is that often if I'm not careful and if I'm not intentional, I begin to care more about what other people think of me than I do what God thinks of me. This is the idol of reputation. Now I'm sure none of you guys struggle with this idol. It's probably just me and a bunch of people in the first service. But we're going to go through some of these things together anyway, and, and then you'll know how to counsel those first service people when you bump into them. So let's, we're going to find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 5. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles. We're going to look at a case study today. This is just a story. Our whole service today is going to be looking at this case study of a guy named Naaman. Naaman. Would you say his name with me? Naaman. Naaman is going to be the main character of the story we're looking at. This is in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have one of the Bibles from the back, it's page 311. Hopefully that will help you out. Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5, it begins with this way. The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him, through Naaman, the Lord had given Aram great victories. So let's just pause right here and kind of help us understand some of what we're reading here. Is first of all, Naaman is not an Israelite. He's not a Jew. He's actually an Aramean. And he is not just an average Aramean. We see very quickly in the story that he's essentially the secretary of defense for Aram. And he is like, uh, he's, he, he's been victorious. We're going to find out in a few minutes that he has extraordinary wealth. He, so he has power. He's wealthy. This guy has significance. But there's one thing against him, and this is a pretty big one. If you keep reading in verse 1, it says, But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Now, we don't hear much about leprosy today, but in the Bible, when the Bible is referring to leprosy, this word included skin diseases that would slowly cripple, disfigure, and finally kill their victims. And so in spite of all of Naaman's wealth and power and prestige, he's literally falling apart. This is what leprosy does to you. And so you have this man who was used to being the ultimate insider. I mean, for years, maybe for decades, if he, if he rang somebody on the phone, you're going to take his call. If you see his name pop up on your phone, you're answering it. You're not ignoring it. This is the ultimate insider. And yet with one diagnosis, he has suddenly become an outsider. And my question for you to bring it to our lives is, have you ever found yourself being on the outside looking in? Maybe this takes you back to middle school days. Maybe it takes you to your first job. Maybe in your family dynamics, and, and here we are this week, and some of you are going to be with family members that you haven't seen since last Thanksgiving, and when you're, when you're, when you're walking into that living room, you just kind of feel like you're the outsider, you're the, you're the black sheep, you're the one that no one quite understands, you're the outsider, you're the one on the outside looking in. And Naaman, who has been used to being the I mean, always the insider, always the one to go to, has now, because of his diagnosis, because of leprosy, he's now the outsider. He's the, the one on, who, and, and, and here's what happens when we're on the outside looking in. We will do almost anything to get included. There's a desperation. If you've ever, if you've ever been there, you know that there's a desperation inside of you that you don't want to be outside, you want to be inside. It's amazing the things that we'll do. And so Naaman and his household staff of servants 
has a servant girl who is actually from Israel, and she hears about this diagnosis, and so she comes to Naaman, or maybe she goes to somebody else, but the word gets to Naaman that the servant girl who's from Israel, that she has said, there is a prophet in Israel who can heal you of your leprosy. And Naaman is so desperate, he, he's grasping at straws, he'll do anything because this is a death sentence that he's received. And so he decides to take a journey to Israel. Now it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly how long this journey would take. We do know that it would take weeks and probably it took even a month or longer for him to journey from where he was in Aram to the place, because there's no mass transit, there's no planes, trains, or automobiles, another great Thanksgiving movie. Like there, there's none of that stuff, right? And so, so he's got a journey. This isn't a simple journey. He's got a journey weeks, maybe a month to get to Israel. And he doesn't go by himself. He brings an entire entourage. And he finds himself now in Samaria at the, in the capital city. And he's right there at the palace of the king of Israel. And look at what my boy brings with him. He brings a load of servants, including chariots. And, and along with him, he brings, and this is in your Bibles, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. Yo, I don't even have a clue how much that's gotta be worth, right? 150 pounds of gold. And then he brings like a U-Haul full of, of clothing. Because back, and that, that sounds weird. You're like silver, gold, and clothing. What's the clothing all about? In the ancient world, most people would have at best like one outfit, like that, that's all you would have. And so he brings like a whole U-Haul of clothes because he means business, right? So he shows up with all these servants, all this silver, all this gold, the Gap store and a U-Haul. And he shows up at the palace of the king. And all the king knows is that the secretary of defense of Aram is here wanting an audience with him. And the king of Israel immediately feels threatened. The king of Israel is not a righteous guy. He's not a God-fearer. He's been idolatrous. And, and there had been conflict. Like throughout the years, there had been conflict between Aram and Israel. There had been military skirmishes. And so the secretary of defense is waiting for an audience with him. And he doesn't have a clue of what's going on. So he shows up. And he simply presents to the king of Israel a letter from his king, the king of Aram. And here's what the letter says. So you have the king of Israel who's just been handed this letter from the king of Aram. And it says this, I present my servant Naaman, I want you to heal him of his leprosy. Like you didn't wake up, if you're a king of Israel, you, you didn't wake up thinking, uh, I think this is probably a possibility for today. Like what, what is the king of Israel supposed to do with this letter? I present my servant Naaman, I want you to heal him of his leprosy. The rationale in Naaman's mind, Naaman, who is the Secretary of Defense for Aram, the rationale seems to be, okay, if there is a prophet in Israel who can heal me of my leprosy, I will go to the king of Israel, and because of my wealth, and because of my influence, and because of who I am, and because of this letter that I have from my king, the king of Israel will command this prophet to heal me, and I'll go home cured. Naaman is looking at this situation from a totally transactional mindset. He's not even thinking about God. Like God, if you look through these passages, God isn't even mentioned so far. You'll notice that the, the servant girl told him that there's a prophet in Israel who can cure him of leprosy. What is a prophet? A prophet is a spokesman for God. She goes, you need to go to the man of God. You need to go to the one who has communion with God, who communicates with God, who knows the heart of God. You need to go to him, and he will heal you. 
But Naaman doesn't have time to mess with spiritual kookery. He doesn't have time to mess with God freaks, you know? Like, so instead of going to some religious nut job, he's going to go straight to the king of Israel, and he's going to get the job done by going to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel will make this whole thing happen. Now, the king of Israel, by the way, is none too happy about this. In fact, let's just read this, because he can't make this stuff up. Verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, listen to this, am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. The king of Israel, who is not a God-fearer, he's idolatrous, he's a wicked man. The king of Israel goes, this is a trap. I can smell a trap. Something's going down. But he also understands, even though he's not a God-fearer, he does understand this about the one true God. He understands that the one true God, the living God, the eternal God, is not a vending machine that you can manipulate and you can tell what to do. I think sometimes we still struggle today in the American church with this mindset that we can order God around. I can make this declaration and God has to do what I tell him to do. God, does, God doesn't have to do anything you tell him to do. Here's the way it goes in the word of God. I am a servant of the one true God. He is not my servant. And the king of Israel, as wicked as he was, he understood that God can't be bought and he can't be controlled. So he, he's wigging out. Like, what, are, what am I going to do in this situation? Like, I've got the secretary of defense for a foreign land who's been at opposition with us, and, and he's expecting to be healed, and I don't have what it takes for him to be healed. What are we going to do? Like, I mean, I'm screwed either way here. Let's go on. The very next verse is in verse 8. But when Elisha, who is the man of God, he's the prophet, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. And I love this. Why are you so upset? In other words, king of Israel, you don't have to be upset right now. You don't have to be freaking out. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and I love this, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. Now, at first it sounds cocky, like, I'm the man, send him to me. No, no, no. The prophet, Elisha, understands that he represents the one true God. He goes, send him to me, and when he gets in my presence, he's going to get in the presence of God, and his life's going to be changed. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and all of his silver and all of his gold and his U-Haul full of gap clothes, and he waits at the door of Elisha's house. And Naaman is in for a shock because he shows up with his whole entourage. I mean, they're right there in the front yard of Elisha's house. And I can see Naaman with all of his splendor and all of his, you know, clothes that are you know, most designer clothes, probably worth, you know, $5,000, just his coat alone. And he goes up and he rings the doorbell and, you know, he's strutting, even though he's got leprosy, maybe his finger just fell off on the way in or something. That's how leprosy works, right? He rings the doorbell with his thumb. <laughs> and here's the, here's the craziest thing. Elisha doesn't come. Elisha, the man of God, the guy, the guy who represents God, he doesn't come to the door. Instead, it, this is in scripture, he sends his servant. 
This is what I love about Elisha. Elisha is so secure in who he is in his identity as a follower of the Most High God. And you know, when you're secure in your identity and you don't care what other people think of you, your sole deal is that I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to say what he wants me to say. I'm going to go where he wants me to go. I am his servant. I belong to him. Then it doesn't matter if the wealthiest person, it doesn't matter if Elon Musk himself shows up at your door and God says, don't answer the door, you won't answer the door. See, some of us struggle with saying no because we're so consumed with what people will think of us. In fact, as I was preparing this week, I literally felt the Holy Spirit say that at this point of the service, I was supposed to say this, somebody in this room, he's been telling you to say no, and you won't say it because you fear what someone else thinks about you. And so because we're people pleasers, we're saying yes, 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 even though God is saying, I didn't tell you to say yes to that. You don't have to say yes to everything. Well, I'm a Christian. I've got it. No, you don't. What does the one true God want you to do? So Elisha, I love it. Naaman is there, pushing the ring button, standing back. Finally the door opens, and it's a servant. He can tell by how he's dressed. And he's like, um, I'm here to see your master. The master doesn't want to see you. He gave me a message for you. I can, Naaman's already, like, ticked off. He's already a little perturbed. He's used to when he says, Naaman is here, that everybody drops what they're doing and they respond. And so the servant gives him a message. And here's the message. This is shocking. Verse 10, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. It's a very simple message. A kindergartner could get this message. Go to the Jordan River Wash yourself seven times, your skin will be restored, you'll be healed of leprosy. So what, how does Naaman react? Verse 11, but Naaman became angry and stalked away. He becomes like a kindergartner. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. Aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana, and the Farpar, aren't they better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? So Naaman turned and went away in a rage. <laughs> this is in the Bible. Some of you, you guys should read your Bible. There are so many crazy stories in your Bible. So Naaman is obviously expecting that the prophet would be impressed with him. He's thinking that the prophet would come out and probably bow down before him, that the prophet would gladly take all of his wealth, and, and that the prophet would perform some kind of magical ritual over him, and presto, he's healed. At, at the very least, he thought that the prophet, if the prophet's going to ask him to do something, the prophet's not going to ask him to go to some dirty, scummy river and dip in it. That at the very least, if the prophet's going to ask him to do something, the prophet, because of his prestige, because of how awesome he is, because of how educated he is, because of his power and his might and his ability to command armies, that at the very least, the prophet is going to ask him to do something worthy. I want you to go and find the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West and bring it back to me and then I'll heal you. Take this ring of power to Mount Doom 
And then come back and your healing will arrive. Like, like he, he want, he's expecting that if you're going to ask me to do something, at least ask me to do something grand. Because, I mean, come on, here I am. I'm Naaman. Everybody knows me, right? Instead, he's being asked to wash himself. Now, we have to say something at this point about the Jordan River. What is it about the Jordan River? The Jordan River is kind of like the Lake Erie of the Bible. Now, we all get defensive, but remember 30 years ago when Lake Erie would literally, you could light it on fire? Like, this is, okay, there's no sanitation systems, there's no sewage systems, and so what you have is on a road, you would have another, like, kind of, kind of a channel that would go along the road where all of the waste would go. And by waste, I hope you guys know what I mean, like the crap, we'll say it that way. Animal, human, all of it's running. And where do you think all of that crap would run to? The Jordan River. The picture on the postcards. Now here's the other thing about the Jordan River that maybe we forget about when we're thinking about this. Is the river was the place where people would gather. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have like these nice restaurants that you could go to. I mean, everything in the scorching sun in Samaria, man, if you wanted to cool down, you would go to the river. People would wash their clothes in the river. They'd wash their eating utensils in the river. They would gather at the river. And so the river, maybe if you're thinking that he was going to go to the river, then it's a place of isolation where he could privately obey the instructions of the prophet and then go on his merry way. No, when he goes to the river, there's going to be hundreds of eyes watching what he's doing. And especially, I'm sure word has already spread that Naaman, the defense secretary for, Ar- for the nation of Aram is here. And oh, by the way, he has 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold. And did we mention that he has a U-Haul full of gap clothes? Don't you know that everybody wants to see what's going on with him, right? So he's not going to do it. Naaman had allowed his status to cloud everything. And he's consumed with this question. And here's a question I think consumes all of us. What will people think? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What are people going to think? Isn't it interesting how consumed we are with ourselves? You say, Ken, I'm not consumed with myself. Yeah, you are. Has anyone ever texted you a group photo that you're included in? Who's the first person that you look at in the group photo? Let's say it together. Yourself, right? So here's, here's a Motley crew from a few years ago. I wanted to find a, and uh, I particularly like this picture because Chip, who's right there in the center, <laughs> he had on his shirt this great big yellow letter, and uh, we photoshopped it out. <laughs> so here's, here's what happens in a group photo. You immediately look at yourself. And here's the other thing, right after this, you judge the quality of the photo by how who looks, how you look. There could be 20 people in a photo, and if your eyes are closed, it's a horrible photo. Everybody else can be looking awesome. They can be looking their best that they've ever looked. But if you don't look good, that's a horrible photo, right? Why? Because I care so much about how I look. And you do too. 
And what? <laughs> you can take that photo off now. <laughs> now we're just. <laughs> what are people going to think? How do I look? Here's what I wrote in my notes. Naaman's insistence on self-dignity and reputation almost cost him his healing. In fact, we could take this a step further because the healing was of leprosy. It almost cost him his life. Let me say it again. Naaman's insistence on self-dignity and reputation almost cost him his life. He got ticked off, and like a kindergartner, he's go- I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. I'm not doing what the prophet told me to do. That's stupid. I'm going to journey the weeks, maybe even months that it takes to go back home. And his servants at this point, I mean, they've been used to his ego. They've been used to his pride. They've been used to all this. But at this point, they just say, all right, permission to speak. We journeyed all the way out here. We carried all of your gold and silver and clothes. We, we did all of this. And now we're just going to go all the way back. Couldn't you at least try it? The Jordan River's right there. Couldn't you just take a dip? Can't we just give it a college try? They finally convinced him. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14, it says, So Naaman went down to the Jordan River, and I imagine there's a hundred, maybe a thousand eyes all watching him. And he takes off all of his expensive clothes, and he lays it on the shore, and now he's down to, in our culture, it would basically be our, his underwear, And he goes out into the river, and it says that he dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Isn't that incredible? There's one last thing before before we move to the end of the story. I sometimes wonder, like, what would have happened? I mean, picture him. He's out out in this dirty river. Things are floating by. (laughs) They're gross. Fish, fish are floating by. All these people are watching. I'm sure word is spread. They're all watching. Here he is. He knows all these eyes are on him. One, two, this is so stupid. Three, nothing's happening. Four, nothing. Like literally nothing is happening. Five, do you see all these people watching me? I'm done. I quit. I'm going back. Guys, we're going home. Can you imagine how many of us have forfeited a miracle because of partial obedience instead of full obedience? Think of how close Naaman could have gotten. I mean, if this was us, so many of us probably would have been, like at number three and number five, you're going, there's nothing that has happened. I don't think the miracle, I don't think the miracle started, you know, like the Disney movies where he comes up and after one, oh, that pimple's gone. Oh, that thing's gone. Two, oh, more of them. I don't think anything happened until he came up out of the seventh time. I wonder how many miracles we forfeited because of our lack of fully obeying God. Here's the thing, partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. I can say, but I I did it a few times, doesn't matter. I, I, I wonder, and, and sometimes, you know, especially when it comes to the things of God, I'll, I'll be the first person to say, I don't understand everything about the kingdom of God. And nobody in this room does either. 
I don't understand why miracles happen to some people, and, and it seems like some people come up for healing, and it seems like nothing happens. But I will tell you, there, there is this pattern that I see in Scripture, and there's a pattern that I've seen in 20-some years of ministry that persistence pays off. And we can say, oh, I, I prayed, and nothing happened. How many times did you pray? I prayed once. Nothing happened. See, Jesus said this in the Gospels. He said, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Jesus held up the persistence of people like this widow who was seeking justice. And she just would give this judge no rest. And Jesus affirms her. He doesn't say, she was ridiculous. He affirms their persistence. I wonder how many times we forfeit the miracles that God has for us because we just give up too soon. We just stop praying too soon. I love, you know, I love when we have these times where we're, we're here to pray for people and you'll see like repeat offenders who just come up every week. And there's a temptation to go, man, why does that person keep coming up every week? You want to know why it is? They believe today could be the seventh time. Today could be the time of breakthrough. And you know what? They don't really care what you think. Because it's not about you in the first place. It's about their relationship with God. Months ago, I was in my office and I was praying. And I don't, I don't want to be one of these guys. I know I, I hear people who say, well, God told me this and God told me that. I'll be honest. I, I think God tells me things, but there, I don't walk around like with this red phone to heaven. I know he speaks to me primarily through his word and he'll give me thoughts. He'll give me suggestions. I was sitting in my office a couple months ago and I felt very clear. It wasn't out loud. It was a thought that came to my heart and it was this question or this challenge do you want my presence or do you want your dignity? Do you, this was God speaking. Do you want my presence or do you want your dignity? In other words, am I going to be consumed with my reputation and what people think of me? Or am I going to be consumed with, God, I want your presence more than anything in this world. And I will do whatever you ask of me because I just want your presence. See, I believe there's people walking through these doors every single week who are hurting, who are grieving. We had a mom in the first service who just in the last year has lost two sons, one to a drug overdose, one to another issue. First time at Journey Church, never been here before. She walks through these doors. You know what she needs? She doesn't need a sermon. She needs the presence of God. As she faces Thanksgiving this week and Christmas just a few days after that, because it feels like it'll be just a few days after that, right? What people need... They don't need me to care about my reputation. They need to encounter the presence of God. And this isn't just a church thing. This is in your life as well. This isn't just a challenge for your pastor. This is a challenge for you. Like, do we care more about our reputation or do we care more about the presence of God? And you know what happens? There's something that happens inside of us where we just say, you know what, I, I'm... I'm I, I love the people around me, and I care about the people around me, but God, you alone are going to sit in the throne of my life, and whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it, and I don't care what anybody else thinks about it, and whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to do it, and I don't care how foolish it seems in the minds of people around me, and whatever you ask me to say, I'm going to say it. 
because I care more about your opinion than I care what people think about me. I'm not letting the idol of reputation sit in the throne of my life anymore. God, you alone must sit on my throne. So at the end of the story, still in 2 Kings chapter 5, Naaman has received his healing. And now he goes back to the prophet's house. And it's very interesting that now Elisha will meet with him. There's been a change. He's, he's been humbled. And so now when, when Naaman comes, Elisha goes, okay, I'll meet with you. And Naaman makes a really interesting request. I'm jumping to verse 17. Naaman says, please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, with dirt from this place. And I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other God except the Lord. Please, let me take some dirt from your garden. I always want to remember this place and this moment where God met me and healed me and changed me. I don't know about you, as I read this study, story and I study this story, I see a man at the end of the story who has let go of reputation and dignity. I mean, the guy is filling up buckets of dirt now to take home with him. And he has learned that God alone must sit on the throne. You know where I see, I see this as a pastor so often as we get ready to, to move toward a close? You never believe a pastor when he says that, right? You're like, yeah, sure, we're moving to a close. You know where I see this so often, and maybe this is true of you, where this thing of reputation keeps us from what God has for us? It's with the actual gospel message itself. Sometimes the gospel message is so simple that we trip right over it. And the gospel message is, I can't. God can. He made a way through Jesus, through Jesus' death and resurrection. And that if I will humble myself and receive what he has done for me, then I can be forgiven and receive grace and have the empowerment to live for him. But here, here's the problem with the gospel message for a lot of people in this room. It starts with a place of humility. And we don't like that. I've met people who have said, Ken, I don't like to think that I don't have anything to offer to God. Ken, you don't understand. I've lived a good life. I'm a good person. I'm not like this knucklehead sitting next to me. Can I tell you, when you die and you get to heaven, the question is not going to be how good of a life you lived because none of us have lived a good enough life to meet the standards of God. The question is not going to be what you have done. The question is going to be what did you do with what Christ has done? That Christ did all the heavy lifting. When he was betrayed by his best friend or one of his 12 friends and he was another best friend, denied that he even knew him. When, when he went through betrayal and denial, when he was falsely accused, all these charges that everybody knew were false, lobbed at him. Sentenced to die. Walked through a city with his back like just bloodied and beaten. Beard ripped out. 
And he goes to Golgotha, the place of the skull. He's nailed to a cross and he's hoisted up naked. And everybody around him is laughing as he's slowly suffocating to death, mocking him, jeering at him. He's fighting for his life. And one of the last phrases that he can get out of his mouth is, your debt is paid in full. It is finished, literally in the Greek, can mean a debt is canceled. It's paid in full. And so we're presented with his gospel message. Not only that, that he's put in a borrowed tomb and on the third day he's resurrected from the grave proving his authority and power. And he simply offers what he has done for us and says, if you will latch on to me, if you will receive me in my grace, there's freedom and salvation and life for you. And we walk right past it because we go, well, I don't need that. I'm a good person. I've been really religious. I've lived a good life. See, this, this idol of idolatry can keep us from the presence of Jesus. This idol of, what did I say, idol of reputation can keep us. So my question for you is, have you humbled yourself and said, it's not about me, it's not about what people think about me, it's about what Jesus has done for me. I want to receive his grace. Have you humbled yourself and said, Jesus, I've sinned against you. I'm broken. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. I need you to come. I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. Empower me to live for you. If you've never done that, I want to ask you just to stand to your feet right now. If you've never done that, you say, Ken, would you pray for me? I just want you to stand to your feet right now. You say, I'm not doing that. What will people think? Have you been in the sermon? <laughs> Have you listened to the sermon? Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. In fact, I will tell you right now, 90% of this room is cheering for you and is gonna be so excited. But if we can't stand for Jesus in a room full of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, how are we gonna do tomorrow at work? Or on Thursday with our pagan relatives? So if you're here and you say, Ken, I haven't humbled myself. I haven't asked Jesus to come into my life. I haven't asked him to be the master and leader of my life. But today, I'm not going to let reputation, I'm not going to let what other people think of me get in the way one day longer. If that's you, would you just stand to your feet right now? Anybody else? Say, Ken, this is awkward. Can you have everybody close their eyes? Not today. We usually do. I believe there's somebody. I don't know who it is, so I don't want you to think that I'm, oh, man, he's. I really believe there's somebody else that's supposed to reply, somebody else who's supposed to stand. And you know it because you're so nervous. Your back is sweating right now. You're fighting it. You're trying to make every excuse of why you shouldn't. Just give up. Anybody else? Let's pray together. If you're around any of these people who have stood, in fact, can we all just stand to our feet right now? Thank you, Dan. Father, I just pray right now for my friends who have stood for you because they recognize they can't. 
They don't have what it takes. Which is the simplicity of the gospel message. None of us have what it takes. And so instead, we receive your grace. In fact, if you, if you stood, or maybe you didn't stand earlier, but you're standing now, would you say, dear Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. I receive your forgiveness. Empower me to live for you. I want to go where you want me to go. I want to say what you want me to say. I want to do what you want me to do. You're the Lord. I'm your servant. And Father, I don't just pray for these individuals who stood. I pray for all of us. At our core, we all struggle with this. So this week of all weeks, with Thanksgiving right on the horizon, God, may we be a people who care more about your opinion than we care about the opinions of anybody else. May we lay down the idol of reputation. May we realize that God alone must sit on the throne. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.